Hi, friends. It's good to be with you today, even if only virtually. And I must confess to you, this is the third time I have started this because I'm finding it's very hard to record a Bible study talk in the midst of a household with other people in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> so, And I may or may not have confined them all to their rooms. So anyway, if, if we get interrupted, I'm going to try to just keep keep moving here. So we are in Mark 6 today, uh, verses 1 through 29. And last week, we saw some profound examples of faith in Jairus and the bleeding woman. This week's going to feel a lot different. We're actually going to see themes of unbelief, as well as the cost of discipleship for those who do believe. And I will be honest, this was a challenging passage for me to sit in. While God's grace is always present, and we will certainly talk about that, the events in this passage are not your feel-good stories in the book of Mark. Instead, we are asked to wrestle with the reality of unbelief, and we're challenged with the cost of discipleship, which often involves suffering for those of us who follow Jesus. While these are hard things to grapple with, they are the real stuff of life. And they give us perspective when we do experience suffering. I'm really glad that the Bible engages us here. And I'm also glad we get to venture into this together today. Um, Well, in the midst of so many hard things about this pandemic, uh, one of the sweet things I have found has been to celebrate many of our hometown heroes. Teachers, doctors, nurses, delivery personnel, those who have really gone above and beyond to help us through this unprecedented time. We've seen this appreciation expressed through TV commercials, social media posts, signs in front yards, banners outside of workplaces. It's been encouraging, I think, for all of us to cheer on our hometown heroes. Well, this show of celebration and support is what we would expect from the people in our chapter today, because right at the start of Mark 6, Jesus is visiting his hometown of Nazareth. But there is a significant change in tone here as compared with chapters previous to this one. Jesus' hometown is amazed at him. It uses the word astonished, but their astonishment is tainted with suspicion. It says they took offense at him. And this word offense in the Greek means a stumbling block. It's actually used eight times in the book of Mark. And each time it refers to something that causes a hindrance to faith in Jesus. And in this case, Jesus' lowly background is the stumbling block to them. You can hear this in their questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? You see, Jesus didn't study under a rabbi like most religious leaders of the day. So basically, in their eyes, he didn't even have an academic degree. They keep asking questions like, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Who is this? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Isn't this Mary's son? Maybe a hint of insult there. The bottom line is, we know his family. We saw this guy grow up. What makes him better than one of us? Jesus was not staying within the normal boundaries of social class that was decided at birth. Here he was a carpenter's son, claiming to be God. And simply put, they found this scandalous. Jesus pronounces a proverb that sums it all up. He says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. 
If we view these as three concentric circles, each one of these categories gets more personal, more intimate, and more painful with rejection, his hometown, his relatives, and his own household. Maybe even you can relate with some of Jesus' pain and isolation of rejection within your own household. We know that after his resurrection, Jesus' brothers believed. In fact, James and Jude even went on to write books of the Bible. But during his earthly ministry, they were not his biggest fans. And this is one of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Exposure to Jesus does not guarantee faith. We cannot predict who will believe and who won't believe, who the insiders and the outsiders will be. In fact, even Jesus was surprised. We read that he marveled at them in verse 6. And what was it that amazed Jesus? It says he marveled at their unbelief, their hardness of heart. The people that should respond most positively to him are the most resistant. And it says he could do no mighty work there. He healed a few, but he will not force his miracles on a hostile, unbelieving audience. Instead, we read that he moves on and continues teaching in other villages. And really in doing this, he's modeling to his disciples how to act toward those who don't receive his message. And later on in this chapter, as he sends the 12 out, he instructs them to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against those who don't receive the message. This was, was symbolic of a custom in that day, according to the Jews. Um, they would shake the dust off their feet and clothes when they came back after traveling outside of Palestine so as not to contaminate what they considered to be the Holy Land. And here in Jesus' instruction, it's used as a clear warning to the unbelieving town that now that they have heard Jesus' message, they are accountable before God. But it's more than an indictment. It is a pleading call to repentance. So what does this mean for us? I think first it causes us to examine the soil of our own hearts. How are we responding to Jesus' invitation? Are we responding in faith or are we responding in unbelief? Secondly, I think it encourages us to be generous with scattering the seed of the gospel. We are to share the message with all. It is not ours to decide who the insiders and the outsiders will be. Instead, we pray for all, and we ask and trust the Spirit of God to do his work. Finally, it really prepares us, so we are not surprised if we are misunderstood and rejected, especially by those closest to us, or by those that we would expect to respond, to respond favorably. If it happened to Jesus, it will happen to those of us who follow him. In this next section, we come to uh, Jesus not only continues teaching, but now he starts sharing this responsibility with his disciples. And if you remember from chapter three, this has been his plan all along to send them out. And now is the time he is sending them out to expand his ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this somewhat surprising. The disciples track record to this point is not very reassuring. They are slow to understand Jesus' purpose. He has to explain many of his parables to them. They seem immature, imperfect, fearful, timid, at times confused even. And yet here he is sending them out as an extension of himself. 
And Paul actually reflects on this mystery in 1 Corinthians 1. And I think it's something we can internalize as well. It says, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's important that we recognize that it's not the apostles' giftings or expertise that qualifies them to go. It is Jesus' authority and his call that equips them. They go in his name. And James Edwards says it so well. He says their goal was not innovation, but representation. Their goal was not innovation, but representation of the one who commissioned them. It was Jesus' authority that gave them the power to continue the work that he had already started. And to make this even more clear, Jesus tells them as they go out to travel light with bare minimum of essentials. Um, They had each other. We read that they went in pairs, two by two. But other than that, they had one tunic, a belt, sandals, and a staff. Now, not incidentally, this is exactly what the Israelites took with them when they fled from Egypt. In a sense, this is a second exodus. Jesus is offering an exodus from the slavery of sin to the freedom of forgiveness and life with him. And as Edwards puts it, uh, Jesus wants them to be as free from encumbrances as were the Israelites to serve their God in a new venture. So let's think about it. What are some of the benefits of going light? Well, first off, it gave them a sense of expectation and haste. It really freed them up to not worry about worldly cares or personal advancement that could really squelch the urgency of their message. They're not trusting in training. They're not trusting in supplies. Instead, they are left with a dependence on the one who sends them, God himself. And this is key because if they had a surplus, they would not need faith. And faith is the essence of their message. Without faith, Their message is entirely empty. Now, I don't know about you, but this is so encouraging to me. This concept of God using the weak things of the world um, has been such an anchor for my soul through the years. I don't know if it's being the firstborn or if it's my temperament, but since I was a little girl, I have been by nature a perfectionist, and I feel this internal pressure to perform well. And I wrongly feel like I need to be great at something before I step out to do it, which often stops me from stepping out in faith, because if I'm honest, I'm, I'm simply afraid of failure. So every time I feel this pressure to perform or I'm fearful of stepping out to do something that I think God's calling me to do, but I don't feel very good at it, I think, no, Sarah, God chose you not because you are accomplished but because you're needy. And I have found that even though this is a super humbling place to be, it's also a very freeing place for me to be. It frees me up to know that it is his authority that equips me to do what he calls me to do. 
And I've seen him do this time and time again. In fact, I had to preach this to myself even before giving this talk today. Um, so I appreciate you walking with me in this journey of faith. Um, but what about you? Um, where is God asking you to travel light right now? Where do you feel empty, needy, maybe ill-equipped? Maybe you have unanswered questions or fears of the unknown. Where do you need Christ's power to work through you? Where might Jesus be sending you out to represent him, unpolished and all? So the disciples have been sent out, and we see that they will return to Jesus in verse 30. But in between their going and their returning, we have an unusual scene change. Um, in this next account, we see Herod's unbelief and John the Baptist's death. So if you remember, the last time we heard about John the Baptist was in chapter 1, when he was imprisoned. And now we see that he was actually put to death at the hand of Herod. At first glance, this seems oddly out of place, like this, this whole story. But when we take a closer look, we realize that this is another sandwich technique that Mark uses so often. John's death at the hand of Herod, sandwiched between the sending and the return of the 12, is a clear illustration of the unbelief that messengers of, messengers of Christ may encounter, as Herod portrays. And it also shows the true cost of discipleship for all who would follow Jesus, as John's death portrays. We find in this account that John the Baptist was a man committed to his calling as a mouthpiece of God's message. He did not value his reputation or even his life above the truth. In fact, he confronted the king, Herod Antipas, the most powerful man in the land, about stealing his brother's wife and marrying her. Herod had the opportunity to believe John's message. We read that even though his wife Herodias had it out for John, it says Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. But we find when the rubber met the road and Herod's wife requested John's head on a platter in front of, in front of a powerful crowd, Herod decided that he would rather save face than protect God's anointed. As Edwards puts it, the one whom Jesus called the greatest man born of woman, John the Baptist, is sacrificed to a cocktail wager. We see a stark contrast between Herod and John. Herod was, as Mark Strauss puts it, a sham king, who Jesus actually called a wily fox in Luke 13. It kind of gives us this picture that he was scheming and cunning. He would only accept truth if it fed his comforts and reputation. This is contrasted with John, who did not go with the status quo or popular opinion. He understood his role, and he understood the cost. Unlike most martyr stories, we don't hear John's last words of testimony. We don't get to see his courage or his boldness in his last moments. Instead, the only redeeming part of this story is that John was steadfast to the end and his devoted friends came to bury his body. John's death is a foreshadowing to Jesus' death. It's also a foreshadowing to the death of all those who follow Jesus. And I don't know if you're like me, but I was left thinking, oh, 
that's where the story ends. When I first read it, I thought, man, it just ends so abruptly. Well, yes, it does end there, but not exactly. You see, even though this account feels final, it is not the true end of the story. Instead, it is pointing us to a better sacrifice that will turn everything on its head and make all the sad things come untrue, as the Jesus Story Bible puts it. A story, sorry, Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. Um, although John did not rise from the dead, this account points us ahead to Jesus, who does conquer death. And because Jesus lives, we as his followers will too. This is crazy though, is it? Isn't it? Jesus' kingdom is such an upside down kingdom where the least are the greatest. He uses the needy instead of the accomplished. Instead of self-promotion, he promotes and and really models self-sacrifice. Instead of wielding power, he calls us to yield power. This does not come naturally to us. Truly, we need the power of Christ in us. So let's bring this a little closer to modern day. As I'm wrestling with this passage the last few weeks, and I'm thinking through the cost of following Jesus, I started receiving literature from organizations supporting the persecuted church, unsolicited. It just started arriving at my door. First, I received a complimentary hardback book of the Fox's Book of Martyrs, which includes stories of those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus, starting in Bible times all the way through 2020. And then the voice of the Martyrs magazine started arriving at our house. And then, uh, to top it all off, our outreach coordinator here at New Life started posting videos from opendoorsusa.org, which is another persecuted church website. So I thought I should probably start paying attention. So I started reading and listening, and here were some of the stories that I heard. Uh, I found that during this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians in India have been boycotted and excluded when free aid is distributed. Because they are Christians, they are not allowed to buy food in their villages or draw water from their local well. Instead, they have to travel long distances out of their town where opposition is not as strong to feed their families. I also read of one seven-year-old Christian girl in Sri Lanka who lost both of her parents and her eyesight when her church was bombed as they met to worship on a Sunday morning. And these stories reminded me of when Anthony and I went on an undercover missions trip to China early in our marriage. The week before we got there, a group of college students had gathered for a secret Bible study and the police burst into the room, videotaping their faces and arresting them. They interrogated them, they threatened them, they threatened to fail them out of school and ultimately to destroy their family's livelihood. These stories are happening daily to our brothers and sisters all over the world. And even though we don't currently feel persecution in our country the same way, we still all suffer in Jesus' name to some level. We all will experience injustice. We experience disease and grief that tests our faith in Christ. We are misunderstood. We are misrepresented. We are sidelined. The bottom line is we will all suffer in our Christian walk in some way before this life is through. So as I pondered all of this, it really made me ask the hard questions. 
not only am I willing to follow Christ, for which for sure is the first question to grapple with if you haven't yet come to that decision, but for me and for many of us listening to this today, we've already signed up to follow Jesus. We want to be faithful to him to the end. So my question's more centered on what is our motivation to suffer in Jesus' name? And when we suffer, not if we suffer, but when we suffer, what will keep us strong to the end? Well, three truths have given me great comfort as I've wrestled with these things. And I'll say them first, and then I'll explain them. We have a fathomless love. We have a future hope. And we have a faithful Savior. First off, we have a fathomless love. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come down to us on this lowly earth. He made the ultimate sacrifice for us by dying in our place, a perfect man for the rebellious and the imperfect like us. And when we sit with that picture and we are captured by a love like his, we want to live for it (laughs) and we want to die for it. Just as Jesus gave himself for us, we too want to give ourselves for him. Secondly, we have a future hope. There is a bigger picture in play here. Death in this life is not the end. And because Jesus lives, we too shall live. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus will come back to set all things right. The suffering and the injustice that we experience will give way to restoration. And finally, the third reason we can have hope and that we can suffer well. And I think, honestly, this is the most important and the one that I hang my hat on is that we have a faithful savior. God himself promises to keep us firm to the end. First Corinthians one, seven to eight says, as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain us to the end. And second Thessalonians, excuse me, second Thessalonians three, three, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you. And Philippians one, six, God himself, who actually began this good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, sisters, our confidence is not in our own ability to persevere. Isn't that great news? Our confidence is in our faithful Savior who promises to keep us to the end. I want to close with a story from the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, which I highly recommend. And I think this story really captures the beauty and the comfort of God's promise to hold us firm to the end. Ortland writes, when my two-year-old begins to wade into the gentle slope of the zero-entry swimming pool near our home, he instinctively grabs hold of my hand. He holds on tight as the water gradually gets deeper. But a two-year-old's grip is not very strong, and before long, it is not he holding on to me, but me holding on to him. 
Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand. But if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. And so it is with Christ. We cling to him to be sure. But our grip is that of a two-year-old amid the stormy waves of life. His sure grasp never falters. Psalm 63, 8 expresses the double-sided truth. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Let's pray. Jesus, you say that you give us eternal life and that we will never perish. You tell us that no one can ever snatch us out of your hand. Thank you, Lord, that we truly rest in your firm and your loving grip. And Lord, as the troubles of life overwhelm us, we can trust that you've got us. Thank you for promising to hold us secure to the end. Lord, I do pray for our brothers and sisters here and around the world who are suffering as their faith is tested. Will you give them endurance and hope? Will you remind them in tangible and personal ways that you are with them and that you love them? And that one day you will make all things new and you will set everything right. We need you, Jesus. It does not come naturally for us to live in your upside down kingdom. It doesn't come naturally to lay down our rights like you did to seek the welfare of someone else before our own. We need your Holy Spirit to do that work in us. Please make us soft and trusting toward you. Thank you for your gentleness toward us. Thank you for being able to sympathize with our weakness. Thank you for meeting us in our deepest sufferings. We love you. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.